Well, we, we made it. We have studied the entire book of Romans by the end of this hour. Last week, we did look at the doxology, the last couple verses. But what I didn't want anyone to miss was what's happening in chapter 16. A lot of people, because of the subject matter, kind of just skip over 16. They just breeze through it because none of it seems to be anything that's practical, something that we have to live out. But in reality, there's some amazing truths that we need to see as we look at our final study this morning in the book of Romans. I hope you've enjoyed looking at this, studying it, how important it is that we study the books of the Bible, that we understand the sweep of them and what God is doing. And certainly, Romans is one of those letters that has impacted the history of the world, and that is without exaggeration. The truths that are found in the book of Romans is amazing, and its impact is immeasurable. Well, if you have a Bible or a device, we're in Romans 16. Romans 16, if you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand. I'm going to read just a few verses here at the beginning. Paul says this, he writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, as we look at your word this morning, allow us to see the truths that you want us to see that would embolden our faith, that would encourage our faith, that would make us the women and men that you want us to be. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may grab a seat. As we look at this this morning, I just want to make clear just the biggest takeaway that I think we have as we read Romans 16 is this, is that we, us here this morning, stand on the shoulders of great women and men who blaze the way. If there's one takeaway, you look at this list of names. Now, Paul lays out 26 different individuals. He lays out people by name, 24 different people. And I would say this list is like history's handful, right? These women and these men that have rocked this world, they have brought the message to a part of the world in the Roman Empire that was so impactful. Just to remind you, part of what God was doing at that time in the world was that the Roman roads that were being developed, much like our interstate system in the United States, it got developed in the 1950s. It was a vision to start expanding this interstate network so that we could travel all over our great country. Well, the Roman roads were the exact same thing, except it wasn't just for travel. As I look at it theologically, it allowed the gospel to spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. This is our God at work in the world using human means, the Roman roads, to bring the gospel. And so as we look at this list, we need to see this history handful, and then we start delving into some details just a little bit. Now, 
as you probably read this, some of you may not be as aware, but there's some Jews listed, there's some Gentiles listed, there's some slaves that are listed, there are people that are former slaves that are now freed people, there's wealthy people, there's poor people, there's people that are politically influential in the list. And so as we go down this, this shows, and this is amazing to me, tremendous diversity and yet unity in the church. And that should shock us because so often we miss out that churches tend to meld together where everybody starts looking the same, right? Because it's easier. It's easier to get along if we all look the same. But what was happening in the church at Rome, there was tremendous diversity and then it brought about the unity. And we're going to see in a moment why there's so much unity. Now, as I look at this, there's a cluster of key phrases. There's a cluster that starts coming together. And the first word is the word greet, right? You, you just look down the list. If you have your Bible still open, you just see greet in verse 6, verse 5. Verse 7, greet. Verse 8, greet again, right? Just going down the list, greet, 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 right? There's all these people that Paul is greeting. And so the natural question is, wait a minute, how did Paul, who had never been to Rome, know all these people? Well, part of it, I already gave you the answer, the Roman roads. People were traveling a little bit more than we think, but then there's some people in the list that are very significant. The first several, right, Phoebe, and we see Aquila and Priscilla, they were very instrumental in keeping the communication paths open of what God was doing in the church. So Paul knew about these people. He was hearing stories about these women and these men and over and over. So this idea of greeting them. The next phrase I'd like us to think about is this phrase, in Christ, right? You just go down the list and it says in verse 7, in Christ. Verse 8, it says, in the Lord, in Christ and then fidelity to Christ. Verse 11, in the Lord. Verse 12, in the Lord. Verse 12 again, in the Lord. Verse 13, in the Lord, right? Over and over. Now you can read that and you can begin to think, this is a throwaway phrase. Guess what? It is not a throwaway, throwaway phrase. What it is, is one of the most significant theological statements that Paul uses to capture the mystery and the majesty of God's work. It is Christ in us and us in Christ. Think about that just for a moment. Christ is alive in our souls. Now, if there's not a mystery in the world, to talk about that is one. The mystery of God, his very life living in our soul. That's what he's talking about. And then we as a corporate entity are in Christ. So we are as much linked with each other in Christ as we are linked with Chris, with Colleen and Bic in Cambodia and the group of people there, right? Because we are in Christ. And that should get you excited of what God is doing is that he's knitting together a group of people from all over the world that can legitimately, honestly, authentically say, I am in Christ. Now let's just take it to another level. What he's telling you and me is that we are going to spend eternity with those people. So you are going to get to meet every one of these people on the list. 
You're going to get to rub shoulders with them. You're going to be able to break bread with them. You're going to have meals with them. You're going to laugh with them. You're going to swap stories with them. It is going to be amazing. And why can we say that? Because we are in Christ. And Christ is in us. So don't let that phrase just go by you without seeing this. In fact, some people want to say that for the Apostle Paul, that this union, this is a theological concept, that this union, Christ in us and us in Christ, is the core of what carries the Apostle Paul's writings throughout all of his writings. So you think of Galatians, or you think of Philippians, or you think of Ephesians, right? This in Christ concept is woven into all of them. Well, there's other words up there. You notice phrases like co-workers, right? These are people that labor side by side. They have, they, they have prayed together. They have sweated together. They have worked hard to see the furthering of the kingdom. And these are the co-workers. And so we see this, this phrase, co-workers, like in verse 3 and in verse 8. We see it again in verse 21. And I just want you to see that what's pulling this together are these are people laboring together. And even if the word co-workers isn't there, you're going to be seeing phrases like they're working hard together. Then we have this idea of brothers and sisters. Isn't that beautiful? This is family language. Don't miss it. We're not as inclined to use it. Some churches, especially in the South, when I travel there and smaller churches, right? Hey, here's brother so-and-so, here's sister so-and-so, right? And even up here, we, we do some of that. And there's something neat about that because you're recognizing a very significant spiritual relationship. And that is, as I try to talk about in Romans, is that the most significant relationship is our spiritual connection to people. That this woman that I've lived with now for almost almost 40 years, is not merely my wife, but she is my sister in Christ. And I need to see her as a sister in Christ. And guess what? She's got a big brother that does stand over me. His name's called Jesus, and she's given the authority to call him brother. So I need to pay attention to how I treat my sister in Christ, right? I mean, this is just normal, natural thinking as we think about these different parts of all this. Now, there's also a number of women mentioned. There's nine women that are mentioned, and then there are, and this is something that I wouldn't want you to miss. Of the list of names, men and women, only the women get a shout out for their very hard work, for their very hard work. Now, I don't want you to miss this, right? Verse 6, greet Mary who worked very hard. It doesn't say that about the men. Now, I'm not trying to throw you guys under the bus. What I am trying to say, well, I'll say it in a minute. Let me show you another. Verse 12, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Now, we probably think those are sisters, maybe twin sisters, right? With a name like that, Tryphena and Tryphosa, you might just think that they're twin sisters, right? But look what it says, they worked hard, right? They, these women are people who work hard. It keeps going, it says uh, Persis, another woman who has worked very hard. Now, why do I want to draw some attention to this? I'm not sure why. No, I'm just kidding. 
I want to draw attention to this because the church, generally speaking, hasn't always elevated women to the status that they need to be elevated to. And women are part of the kingdom and they are playing a significant role throughout the world, bringing the gospel everywhere. They are truly co-workers. There is this beautiful togetherness that happens when men and women work together. And for too long, the church, generally speaking, has not brought women into the elevated role that they should have. Now, I am not discounting that there are some theological questions that come to bear, and I'm not dismissing any of those because some people want to so swing the pendulum in a different direction, not in terms of equality, but in confusion of what the Bible teaches. But I just want to say and make it really clear is that we need to stand strong with women and make sure that we always keep them as our co-laborers, that we as men and women, there's this blessed togetherness that better magnifies the name of Jesus. And let me say, at Fox Valley Church, we have women that work very, very hard. Now, this is a good time, guys, to stand up, men. Let's stand up, men. Let's show our ladies that we love them, we care for them. We're not trying to patronize. We're not trying to say anything less than that we are blessed by the women in this church. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It's awesome what God is doing. Well, let's look at a couple of the women here. We see in verse 1, Paul says, I commend to you Phoebe. Now, she is a deacon or a deaconess. It's unclear just how developed the offices in the New Testament were by this time with elders and deacons and deaconesses. But what we see Phoebe is certainly the word deacon is the word servant. She's listed here. Some translations will say servant. Some will put it as a deacon and that she is in this church in Cancrea. Now, Cancrea is just outside of Corinth where Paul had spent a lot of time there, and he was working alongside her. She is the one, imagine this, that gets to take the ink-written letter called Romans from Corinth and carry it to Rome. She was entrusted with this letter that I'm calling the greatest letter ever written in the history of the world. Phoebe, as we see, is the church at Rome was told, we want you to receive her in the Lord. In other words, Paul is commending this woman to the church at Rome in a way worthy of his people. Do you hear that phrase? Worthy of his people. All of us, if we're Christ followers, men and women, we are worthy to be received this way. You don't have to, you know, be a certain kind of person. We should be encouraging each other. And he says, give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people. That word benefactor, she bankrolled a lot of the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here she is, a hardworking, driving woman that is serving in the church. 
She apparently has some wealth, and rather than using her wealth on herself in the advancement of her IRA and all these 401s and all this other stuff, she's taking her wealth and advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, a benefactor of many people, including, Paul says, me. Now that's a powerful woman, a force to reckon with. Well, let's look at another couple that is in verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers, notice, in Christ Jesus, right? So there's this union idea. Now, sometimes people try to make much out of the fact that Priscilla, in this verse, is listed first, so she must be the leader and Aquila the follower. And let me just say, of all the times Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned, I think it's merely stylistic. I think people just try to make so much more because of the abuse that women have taken in the church that sometimes they try to say things and make things that there's just not a lot of biblical evidence for. But what we do see here is that this couple co-labored together. They were a married couple that worked alongside Paul. In fact, after Paul was in Ephesus and, and he had worked with them in Ephesus, to get that church planted there. That's where they risked their lives. There were riots going on there. There was just crazy stuff. And this couple was there on the front line of battle. Let me say, we can read in the Bible about people that shrink away, people that when the tough get going, right? I mean, the tough starts coming, they leave, right? Not Priscilla and Aquila. They stayed in the battle through thick and thin, risking their lives. Not only I, but all the church of the Gentiles are grateful to them because they were there with them. And then it says, look at verse 5, don't miss this, greet also the church that meets at their house. What that probably means is that they had enough wealth to own a home big enough to house a church. That's where people met. They met in house churches. And so they were meeting there in their own home, using their resources again to further the kingdom. Their home was an open door to further God's work. So we see these people, and you can see why I say we stand on the shoulders of great women and men, right, who blaze the way. These women and these men have made an eternal difference. Now let me say, when you read something like this, you would be way far amiss if you don't just pause for a moment and ask yourself, how is it that I'm sitting in a comfortable environment today? Because you and I are standing on the shoulders of the women and men that went before us at Fox Valley Church. So some 45 years ago, five couples sat in a living room in Barrington and said, it's time for a church to get planted out in Algonquin or the Lake in the Hill area. They started praying. They started seeking the Lord. Then in the fall of 1977, they held their first church service. Can I tell you where it was? It was at the American Legion. The building still stands over there on Algonquin Road over near Pyatt. They were meeting there. Well, it reeked so much of beer. The stench was so strong. They said, I don't think this is going to work out for the long haul. And this group of people that now started to grow moved over to Jacobs High School. Then the vision even grew more. They bought the property 
what is now Thornton's on Algonquin Road. And as the church was getting larger, they said, you know what, this is not going to work. We need a different piece of land. And so those people sold the land over there on Algonquin, and they bought the land here. And the farmer that we bought from, he was just so excited to see that, that one day a church would be here. So when I say we stand on the shoulders, these were women and men that believed God that he wanted to do something unique in this area at this time. And so we're here today enjoying what? Some air conditioning on a day that's going to get up into the middle 90s, right? Because of people that have given their hard-earned money to make an eternal difference. Right now this morning, there's going to be over 100 children gathering in Journeyland, right? Those children are learning what? About Jesus Christ. Their hearts are going to be shaped and molded by the truth of God's word. And living in a world where truth is scarce, these kids are going to hear the word of God, the truth, the great truth, the true truth of what God is doing in the world. So I get excited about this. Now let me just comment, as I look at these different names, you could look at verse 10, you see the name Aristobulus, you probably may not recognize that. This is not probably his greatest claim to fame that he'd like to preach about, but Aristobulus was the grandson to that wicked king that killed those babies in Jerusalem, or in Bethlehem, King Herod the Great. He is the great-grandson, or the grandson of Herod the Great. So Aristobulus now comes to Christ through the baby born in Bethlehem, right? I mean, what an irony, what a twist of these things. Well, then we also, let me just mention, you see the name Rufus in verse 13. You may know that he is the son of the man who helped carry the cross for Jesus Christ. So in Mark chapter 15, you read about Simon the Cyrene. Well, this is his son, Rufus. And so as his father followed Christ, Rufus follows Christ, and they're standing on the shoulders of all these different people. It is just so exciting. So don't ever miss the end of a book. But there's some dangers that Paul wants to bring, and so I'm just going to call it staying the course. But let's look at verses 17 to 20, 23. Let's just read the very end here. Paul writes this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, notice the family language again, to watch out, pay attention to, keep on your guard for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience. So I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sospiter, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality 
I and the whole church here in joy send you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. Wow, what an amazing ending here as we look at this. These great men and women, right, they let us stay the course as we learn from them, as we watch them as they live. What I want to do is recognize that we need to stay on the course in the way of Jesus. That, that's the whole point, right? Of verses 17 to 20, Paul is saying, stay the course. There's going to be some people, and they're going to be right here in your midst, and they're going to try to pull you off course. And he's saying, stay on course, and he uses the word obedience. He is applauding the church at Rome for their obedience. But be careful. I want to caution you. Obedience is not merely about what you do and don't do. There's something deeper always when we talk about obedience. And too many of us miss what is really happening when we're talking about obedience. Now, I know you're thinking, what is he referring to? You need to hold that thought just for a moment. Let's look at 17 and 18. Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those, those who cause division, right? So, so he's saying, keep an eye on them. There's some people that are going to be in your midst. Now, what he's talking about, right, he says, contrary to the teaching you have learned, there's something going on. And he's saying, keep away from them. Like you need an exclamation point there. Stay away. Now, you and I know there's some people that are just divisive. They're difficult. They're contrary. They're negative. They're constantly ripping on something. But here he's drilling down into something very specific, the teaching which you have learned. He's talking about doctrine. Now, the church today in the 21st century in America is probably at its lowest point when it comes to knowing doctrine. It's just a reality. Poll after poll, survey after survey is showing that people do not have command of doctrine the way we should. And we are always at risk, always at risk when we don't know doctrine. Now, I'm not sure what doctrine he's specifically talking about. He doesn't lay out and say, I'm talking about this doctrine. But he's talking about some teachings. So I'm going to pick one, and then I'm going to explore the example, and then we'll talk about uh, obedience. So here, here's how we, we look at this real quickly, right? We, we look at this, and, and we'll take the doctrine of sanctification. Now, some of you are already scratching your head. Sanctification? Okay, that's the doctrine of growing towards maturity. It's the doctrine that says God is at work in you. He is performing this miraculous work to change you into the woman or the man that he wants you to be. But the doctrine of sanctification says that you have a role in it. Different than the doctrine of salvation, where it's totally of God, you're saved by grace alone, right, through Christ alone, right, by faith alone, right? It's, it's, it's God, right? The doctrine of sanctification is a doctrine that says there's God who is at work. He is going to conform you to the image of Christ. That's his goal for you. He's at work. 
But in order for that to happen, what God is doing is he's calling us to participate. He's leading us. And so, so many of the letters of the New Testament are leading you and me in the doctrine of sanctification so that we would grow up and not be babies, so that we would be mature in Christ. So now, as we take this doctrine, let's just take a couple things that we could talk about. Here's one that I wrote down. First one was serving, right? If I want to grow to maturity, I need to be serving. Now, how do I know that? Well, Jesus himself said that. He said, I didn't come to be served in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve, right? And we're constantly called into serving. Now, there's some people that might say, well, wait a minute. Serving's no big deal. Aren't we saved by grace? You see how they, they, they start to mix some things. Yeah, we're saved by grace. But what, what does he say here? It, it says, by smooth talk and flattery. Oh, you don't have to serve. Oh, oh you want to serve? Don't worry about giving very much of your time. You, you could take the lowest job in Fox Valley Church and, and just give a few minutes every week. That's good. Now, I don't know how that squares with all the other things Jesus said about serving, right? About, about laboring in the vineyard and, and about turning and forcing your way with, with him and the way he's going. But the, the people start to twist the doctrine. Or, or here's an, another one. How about giving, right? Giving. So many of us, right, we, we know what's happening in the church in America. A pastor can talk about adulteries, we can talk about affairs, we can talk about gender dysphoria, but don't you dare talk to me about my money. By the way, don't ask, ask how much money I'm making, and don't ask how much I'm giving, right? This is off, off the table, right? So money becomes this huge issue, so what happens? Jesus says, give, and it'll be given back to you, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing, Right? But you can hear people coming in with flattery. Oh, you just got to give a couple percent. Oh, you, you don't have to give very often, right? And, and they start schmoozing in these kinds of things, and it can cause all kinds of problems. Oh, you mentioned money. You're legalistic. We don't have to give. That's just an opinion. That's just something you do out of the generosity of your heart. And if you're not very generous, it's no big deal. You'll be generous one day, right? right? There, there's all these ways to dismiss it that are happening. Or let me take another one. Let's, let, let's talk about daily devotionals, right? There's this doctrine, right, of sanctification. If you want to grow, you've got to read your Bible. Oh, that's so legalistic to say read your Bible every day. It doesn't matter that Jesus got up early to go spend time with the Lord. It doesn't matter that he knew his Bible. It doesn't matter that he grew in wisdom and stature, right? Right? There's this call on our lives, and people come in and say, oh, you're so legalistic if you have time with the Lord every morning, right? But then if we flip this around, we get into the problem of obedience, right? What is obedience? I think the clearest way for me to show you that there's something more than doing or don't doing, and that God is more concerned about your heart, about your heart in your doing. Now, you may not remember, but back in chapter 6, verse 17, it says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. 
So it isn't about giving. It's about giving from the heart. It's not about serving. It's about serving from the heart. Now, when we say from the heart, what we're talking about is a posture of trusting God as you do this. Because if you're not trusting God, you're not pleasing God. So remember Gideon in the Bible, right? The Midianites. The Midianites were, were there, they're coming against Israel, and Gideon's called to be the man, and he amasses his armies. And God looks at him and says, Gideon, too many people, let's get rid of them. He says, he cuts it down a little bit, Gideon, you still got too many people, let's cut it down. Down to what? 300 people. Gideon was obedient. But why was God calling him to do 300 wasn't the magic number of 300. It was that he needed to trust that it was God that was going to rescue Israel. You see the difference? Now, I know time's a little tight, but I, I really would like to tell this story. In Joshua, so Gideon's and Judges, in Joshua, right, God says, I'm going to give you the promised land. The promised land. They're on the edge of the promised land and they're going to move in. Now, a whole generation was disobedient. A whole generation was moving in their own direction, right? And so God says, you're going to wander for 40 years. Well, guess what happens in 40 years? These young men start coming up and God says, now's the time. We're going to go ahead and conquer the promised land. And the strategy is we're going to have a north and a, a south conquering, right? pause. God says, the men have not been circumcised, the young men. Now, we don't need to talk much about circumcision, but you can imagine the discomfort, the pain, the disabling effect of this nice surgical procedure on all the army men that are in Israel. Now, God does it right before they go into the promised land. But other nations are looking and they're watching Israel gather this nation of 600,000 men to conquer them and they're in pain. Now, if you read that, the common question is, hey God, why didn't you back up this plan and have circumcision three months earlier to give them time to heal? I'll tell you why. So that they would trust God. So here they are on the cusp of the promised land in pain, vulnerable to all the nations pressing in. They obeyed God, but it was an obedience from the heart. That's what we're talking about. That's why Paul is applauding their obedience, their kindness here, is that they were obedient from the heart. It was an issue of trust. Now, we're going to go to the Lord's Supper. And this is a time for you and I to talk about the unity of being in Christ, the idea of trusting Christ. Nobody can see into your heart. So I'm going to invite Pastor Brad up, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to go into this time of communion. Father, as we take some time to sit before you, God, we, we, we don't want to be people that are just externally obedient. 
That's just moral improvement. We want to be women and men that's that are the ones we just read about that trusted you for kingdom impact. So God, we, we, we want to be unified. We want to walk together. We want to be your people to your glory because we want to stay the course as long as you give us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.